The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at how far we've made it in the race to connect the human brain with computers and machines. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Malcolm Gay, an arts reporter for the Boston Globe, where he covers visual and performing arts. The recipient of numerous National Journalism Awards, he previously worked as a contributing writer at the New York Times. He has also contributed articles and essays to Wired, The Atlantic, and Time, among other publications. He's also the author of the new book, The Brain Electric, The Dramatic High-Tech Race to Merge Minds and Machines. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. So I had no idea we were as far along as it turns out we are with getting computers to merge with human brains. <laughs> that really surprised me. Did it surprise right. you when you started looking into the topic? Well, what surprised me is it's sort of twofold. On the one hand, yes, we are very far along in merging the mind with machines. On the other hand, there's a long way to go yet. Uh, you, know, you look at the brain right now and, and, and some of the interfaces that, that we're using, and we can do extremely extraordinary, extraordinary things um, in terms of reproducing motor skill, in terms of, uh, you know, giving people access to computer cursors. You know, some of the people that I talked to for the book are working on digital memory. By the same token, there are something on the order of 100 billion neurons in the average human brain. And what the technology that we're talking about uses, you know, 100, 200, maybe a thousand electrodes to really listen in on about that amount of neurons. So we're looking at this very, very parochial window into the brain. So on the one hand, we're able to do amazing things, but we're also looking and, and working with such a small area of the brain that we have certain limitations to, to what we're able to do. That is really interesting. The, the idea that we, we can look behind us and see, wow, we have come a long way and also look ahead of us and see that mountain in the distance and go, wow, that's going to be a long trip. Right. There's a joke that neuroscientists are, are, are fond of telling, and, and it's and, and, and in part because it is, is such a... It's it's, it's so apropos to what they do. And a man is walking down the street and he sees another guy and the guy is kind of crawling around on the ground under a streetlight. Uh, and he kind of walks by and then an hour later he comes back by and the guy's still crawling around by the streetlight. And he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my keys. And he says, well, you've been looking there for an hour. Why don't you look somewhere else? And he says, well, this is where the light is. <laughs> and, you know, that's a very telling, that's a very telling joke in a lot of ways because, you know, what we're looking at is this very minute window into this galaxy. And the more that, the, the, the better we get at it, uh, the better we get at reproducing movement, the better we get at trying to create digital memory, the better we get at any of these you know, specific tasks, the more we start to realize that the brain is this incredibly networked organ that, uh, and, and when you start to get into something that is more complicated, such as movement, that is outside of, you know, simply 
simply moving something forward and back or, or perhaps in three dimensions, that the brain, it uses different uh, areas of, uh, of the organ to, to uh, actuate those movements. So instead of simply having, you know, kind of a, a one-to-one ratio or, or, or relationship with movement within the motor cortex, all of a sudden the brain starts to think in, in, in more symbolic terms in movement and, uh, the, and it really starts to dig at kind of how we really embrace the world as creatures. This I found really interesting in your book and something that I had not heard before, how the physical activity in moving muscles is not only how we interact with objects, but that it may actually be more fundamental than that. Uh, and our ability to interact with something actually is how our brain, to some extent, may construct meaning. Can you maybe walk us through this? Because I found this really fascinating. Right. Well, that's that's a. <laughs> it is really fascinating, and and it's something that is is just so beginning to emerge. There are a couple of ways to get at that. One of them is you know when you think about about what the role of the brain is. You know, there are, we think about the brain, we think about ourselves, we think about our personality, we think about how we, you know, who we are in the world. But what a lot of neuroscientists would tell you is that, you know, what the, the brain has one function, and that is to move muscle. And without the ability to move muscle, all of those delicate abstractions that we have, all of those sentimental sentiments that we have, all of the things that make us who we are, kind of remain locked. They remain in a no man's land. They're you know, kind of stillborn thoughts, they cease to exist. So if you're going to communicate anything in the world, uh, if you're going to communicate, uh, you know, b- via writing, via painting, via talking, you're always moving muscle. That's the only way that we have of communicating. One of the uh, neuroscientists that I cite in the book describes the, the sea squirt in its adolescence, swims freely in the, in the, in the world. Uh, it's a filter feeder, but it swims freely throughout the ocean. Uh, and then when it begins to mature, it locks down onto a reef and the, its first, and it will stay there for the rest of its life. Its first order of business is to digest its brain. The idea being that it no longer needs to, to move. It, so why would it need this calorie-hungry brain? Because it no longer needs to coordinate muscular movement. That's where I think that brain-machine interface and, and neuroprosthetics specifically really bring a kind of a broad challenge to what we consider when we consider evolution because it, it presents the first first time that we're able to you know, interact with the world in a non-muscular manner. We're able to actually graft a digital nervous system you know, that will extend into the digital realm. Uh, and that is something that is, that is brand new. But of course, the, the deeper we get into movement and the deeper we get into questions of, of, of how we actually recreate this and allow the brain to really integrate into the digital world in a fluid manner, we, we start really getting at how the brain, how we as a species perceive the world. And what we're finding is that the brain, you know, we may look at an apple or a cup or a pen and think in the, in kind of platonic terms that, you know, this is an object and I, and, and, and I perceive this object as such. But in neural space, what neuroscientists and, and, and particularly BCI people are able to, to look at is how the brain actually perceives that. Because there's a difference between what the brain presents, you know, our consciousness, this emergent quality we call consciousness, and how the brain actually perceives these things. And what they're finding is that the brain doesn't really think about, you know, a pen as a cylindrical object. It thinks about how we're going to, how 
how we're going to interact with it. And, and, you know, if we're going to write with a pen or perhaps stab somebody with a pen, we're going to think about that object in a very, very different way. And so perception and our perception of the physical realm, um, what neuroscientists are finding is deeply embedded in this sort of embodied consciousness where the brain and the body and physical action is intimately tied to conscious experience. Just backing up a little bit, I mean, how long has this kind of brain machine, brain computer research been going on for? People have been using electrodes to to eavesdrop on neural activity for decades. But in about 2000, 1999, Miguel Nicolelis, I mean, there were, there were several people that were kind of, you know, nipping around at this. They found that, you know, after years of listening in on, on neurons to, when, when, when they would observe evoked reactions in, in lab animals, they realized that they could use these as commands. Uh, and that happened in, in around the year 2000. This kind of type of research where we're actually listening in and trying to control things with our brains in some way without sort of our brain controlling physical motion of our own body, that's actually relatively new. Yeah, it's 15 years old. So who is doing this research and where is the money coming from? Because it is expensive. It's really being done in neuroscience labs across the country. In the Brain Electric, I really focus on uh, the top labs, many of whom have been uh, in the game since the very, very beginning. The funding comes from lots of places. There have been a couple of attempts to create private companies out of this. But a lot of the basic research is being funded by the government, uh, specifically the uh, Defense Department. Department and DARPA, or the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That organization has been tied to brain research for a very long time. Uh, the program that I detail in the book uh, is the Revolutionizing Prosthetics Program, uh, which was f- uh, begun in, the, in around 2005, really to make whole uh, soldiers who were returning from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, who had lost limbs. They've invested somewhere you know, north of $100 million dollars on this program. And uh, so all of a sudden, there is a tremendous amount of money coming into this field of research, which has not only brought on numerous advances, but also really heated up the competition. This is something that I didn't realize when I started reading your book. And I don't think a lot of people in general realize that a lot of the a good portion of the driving force behind this research is the prosthetics science. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what the problems are with current prosthetics and why the prosthetic, the goal of prosthetics is so interconnected with this mind-machine problem? When people were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, they were losing portions of, 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 of legs and portions of arms. And they were also obviously young vets uh, who were in their you know, mid-20s and, and, and had you know, and wanted to live full lives on the, on the other end of this. You know, the vast majority of amputees in the United States have lost all or a portion of the lower limb, so a leg. And when you think about it, those prosthetics are quite sophisticated and quite usable. I mean, the leg in anatomical terms is a problem that we've we've largely solved Sim- simply to be mobile. It's inline motion, you need to have a hip, a knee, an ankle, and a uh, and a big toe really to be able to 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 move in inline motion. Uh, and you know, as Oscar Pistorius will, will, has has shown, and and numerous other amputees, there are all sort of of very very special 
specialized lower limb prostheses that allow people to rock climb and swim and run, and they are even ones that are made with high heels at this point. The arm is a very, very different beast. On the one hand, uh, the market share for people that have amputated arms is quite small. Usually people lose portions of their arm because of some sort of trauma. But more importantly, there's a tremendous amount of engineering that has to go into creating an arm. I mean, if you think about it, whereas the leg you know, has this very limited you know, needs in terms of degrees of freedom, a biological human limb has 27 degrees of freedom. Uh, not only that, it is moving in spontaneous, in a spontaneous manner the entire day long. I mean, it is, we, we rely on our, on our arms and hands to do, you know, a, a, a galaxy uh, of tasks every day. Just from a, from a sheer engineering standpoint, creating a biologically equivalent equivalent prosthetic in, in, in upper limbs is a much greater challenge. Not only does it, unlike the leg, where, which can actually bear weight, hang from the body as though it were, you know, it's it, as, as if it were dead weight, but you also have this big question of how do you actually control something that is that sophisticated? And, you know, people have worked with myoelectric, myoelectric arms, so working with the uh, electrical impulse, pulses that come off of the muscles, the remaining muscles from the stump, but what DARPA has decided, uh, and numerous neuroprosthetists have decided as well, uh, is that the only real way to, to approximate and approach biological movement in an upper limb is to connect that prosthetic directly to the brain. And that is where we start to get into the really crazy stuff, the sci-fi sort of sounding stuff that I didn't realize we had done already. So when we talk about connecting something like a prosthetic arm, or in some of these experiments, a computer cursor to a brain to uh, to be able to control that with your thoughts, essentially. What are we actually talking about when we say words like control with your thoughts or reading brain waves? It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It does. It seems like, well, obviously everyone knows what that means, but I realized reading the book that I didn't actually know what we were doing there. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, I mean, I, I, when I, when I was first, when I was first researching the book, you know, of course, you know, you read these articles and they say, oh, we're, you know, controlling it with just their thoughts. And no, absolutely, no, they're not simply controlling it with their thoughts. There's a tremendous amount of science. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of technology, uh, and there's a tremendous amount of of you know, sheer inventiveness that that goes into this. But but basically, uh, what we're doing is, or what they're doing is, um, you know, create having a craniotomy, uh, in, inserting electrodes into the brain. There are a couple of different ways to to access thoughts uh, via brain machine interface. I'll speak about kind of the most invasive, but also the most, the, 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 the manner that gives the, the clearest control signal. Um, and what that is, it's called uh, single unit or penetrating electrodes. Uh, following the craniotomy, uh, they will uh, implant the electrodes, usually in portions of the motor cortex uh, that are associated with arm or hand movement. Uh, those electrodes uh, are then, you know, wired out of the brain. Uh, into uh, an amplifier uh, that will amplify the signal. Uh, the signals, when they come off the brain, are also analog signals. They have to be digitized. Uh, once they are actually, once they're digitized, they are you know f ferried over to a computer. This is all happening via cable um, to a computer, uh, which runs those signals through an algorithm. Uh, that algorithm uh, 
uses each one of the electrical impulses that the brain, you know, creates the action potentials when neurons fire as command signals. Uh, and that algorithm will, uh, approximate whatever movement, uh, the person, the subject is, is trying to make. So if I'm thinking I want to move my arm or my hand up into the right, uh, you know, the brain will, uh, you know, create this, this neural pattern, uh, that will then be you know run through the the algorithm and that will be used as a command to move whatever the the actuator is be it a cursor or be it a a robotic arm up and to the right you're listening to science for the people and i'll be back with more on connecting brains and machines and the book the brain electric with author malcolm gay in just a minute stay tuned Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and I'm here with Malcolm Gay, arts reporter for the Boston Globe and author of the new book, The Brain Electric, The Dramatic High-Tech Race to Merge Minds and Machines. So a lot of this research and testing um, has generally asked people to do things like think of a truck to move the cursor left or think of hitting a baseball to move the arm over. And that works, but it also isn't very practical um, in situations where reaction time matters, like catching a ball thrown at you, trying to translate or trying to translate movement into otherwise unconnected thoughts isn't exactly the easiest thing to do. Precisely. Um, and that's and that's one of the things that 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 puts, I think, Andy Schwartz's research uh, kind of sets it aside from other people's work. A lot of people, when they, if you're if you're trying, if you're working in three dimensional space or two dimensional space with a cursor, a lot of people will do exactly what you say. They'll think of squeezing their their the, you know, their hand into a fist, and that will move the cur- cursor to the to the left. And something else unrelated will move it to the right. Um, what Andy tried to do uh, and and was and tried to do successfully uh, was to move the cur- you know to to have the research subject uh, think simply of doing the action themselves. So it was a much more intuitive way of working with the brain um, and where he actually has to really understand how the brain is working. Uh, you know, on the one hand, if you think of, you know, a, a bold action like clenching your fist or, or raising your arm uh, to move the cursor to the left or the right, that's going to cause a, a very specific neural pattern that you can get kind of that so you can create a kind of quick and dirty brain machine interface that will give you a, a, a modicum of control. Uh, of course, how do you move spontaneously while you're doing that? That's not, I mean, it's it, on the one hand, it's okay if you're just working in two or three dimensional space, but when you move up your, your dimensions of freedom, uh, you have to start thinking about well, if I'm moving my, if I'm squeezing my fist and raising my arm, and uh, you're you're trying to think of all of these different unconnected movements, there's really no way to create spontaneous movement with that sort of a model. And so what what Andy tried to do uh, was really understand how the brain itself processes and thinks about movement um, in a much more intuitive way. So so his research subjects can explore the space spontaneously. And 
kind of craft or, or, or respond to uh, individual unique situations. Now, we're talking about invasive brain surgery, and there it has been human testing done with this, but I'm assuming that there are some very strict rules and guidelines as to who can be a test subject. You can't just rock up to the office and say, hey, I want to be a test subject in this. So, so who are the people who are the, who, who are volunteering for this research? Right. Well, so there are two, there, there are kind of two classes of people that are, because there are two classes of, uh, of brain machine interface that that are invasive. Um, the first class, uh, the, the, well, I'll say the second class actually, uh, which I also detail in the book, uh, is, is largely drawn on, uh, epilepsy patients. Um, Eric Luthart, who's one of the, the, a neurosurgeon and neuroscientist who I uh, follow quite closely for the book, uh, is a epileptologist. So what he does is he, uh, creates brain machine interfaces with epilepsy patients. Um, he does necessarily need to have uh, the big, you know, he doesn't need to go through FDA approval for any of this because the brain machine interface that he's using has already been approved. So the electrodes are already on the brain. And the reason they've already already been approved is epilepsy surgery is this two-part surgery where you first, the patient goes in, has a craniotomy, and then they place a grid of electrodes on the surface of the brain. So they don't actually penetrate the brain. They, they rest on the surface. Uh, and then during the next week, uh, the surgeon, neurologist, various other uh, specialists will observe as the patient, uh, you know, has several seizures. And what these electrodes are trying to do is really um, hone in on where the uh, where the seizure focus really is. Uh, and then, you know, in in a second surgery, they'll go in and remove the seizure focus. Um, what Eric's insight was, Eric and his and his colleagues' insight was. Uh, was that during that week of observation, uh, they would be able to craft kind of a temporary brain machine interface and use these live human subjects as 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 test subjects. And so, a lot of the a lot of his patients are epilepsy patients who simply say, "I'll do that," because frankly, they don't have a lot else to do during that week of observation because they're you know sitting in the hospital bed waiting to have seizures. Um, the other class of patients, uh, it's much more rigorous. There's an FDA approval process that uh, that the labs have to go through. Uh, those people are usually uh, culled from um, the quadriplegic population. Um, there are several locked-ins, uh, people that suffer ALS uh, that have uh, undergone this as well. Um, but those but those people are, are harder to find. Um, one, because uh, there's a high mortality rate among, among that population. Uh, two, it's very, very difficult for them to, to get around and, and, and just to, to be able to actually access the, the lab. A lot of the research will actually take place in the homes of the people. Um, and they, you know, there, there aren't that many of them as well. So the, the second class of, 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 of research subjects, the, the quadriplegics and locked-ins, uh, that's a much more, um, that's a, those people are much harder to find. I do want to talk about, uh, Jan Sherman. Is that how Sherman? Shurman. Shurman. Yeah. I do want to talk about Jen Shurman, um, because her case in particular, I think, is one of the more recent ones, one that potentially some people have heard of. And for me, where a lot of the pieces of the puzzle in the book started to come together in a really exciting way. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. Yeah. So can you talk about who she is and what happened to her and how she got involved in some of the research? Absolutely. I mean, Jan is, I, I, I think Jan is one of the most, one of the bravest people I've ever met, honestly, as, as, are, as are all the people that do this. But, you know, we don't usually think of, of people who are confined to wheelchairs and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and disabled that way as, as, you know, brave and, and adventurous and explorers. And, and, and that really is what she is. Uh, Jan uh, was living in California uh, and, you know, was raising two children uh, and in the mid nineties began to lose sensation. Uh, it happened one night while she was, you know, she, she realized that her legs were, were not going to support her when she tried to stand up. Uh, and over the next three years, the, the numbness, you know, kind of spread throughout her body or not numbness, but the lack of motor control spread throughout her body. And within three years, she was confined to a wheelchair. Um, you know, she suffers from spinocerebellar degeneration, uh, which is kind of an orphan disease. Nobody, Nobody really knows anything about it. Uh, it presents and looks a lot like multiple sclerosis. Uh, but what Jan suffered from was largely unknown to the medical community, and they, and they weren't able to do anything for her. So for for 15 years, um, she was confined to this wheelchair. Um, and I think that that caused her great spiritual distress. Um, <clears throat> she became incredibly depressed. Uh, part of the reason for that, I think, think is that she was raised Catholic and was given this, you know, was received very early, um, you know, an education and a, and a, and a value system that really valued uh, service to others. Uh, and Jan's, Jan's main cause was hunger. Uh, and when she lost her ability to move, she lost her ability to help other people. Uh, you know, I mean, because if she were going to try to volunteer somewhere, she'd have to have somebody help her to volunteer. It, it, it just, it was, it was an untenable situation and she had a lot of guilt um you know not the traditional catholic guilt but just guilt because she felt she was a burden to her uh to her husband to her primary caregivers to her family she could no longer raise her children um you know to the point where she was she was suicidal um when she found out about this research um she called immediately and uh after you know a, a series of uh, of exams uh was given uh the go ahead to do it and i think that the research is is has been an extraordinary benefit to her she has uh i think regained a sense of meaning in her life uh, i don't think that jan has any any uh illusion that this research is going to physically benefit her in any way uh, and that's not why she's doing it. She's doing it so that other people that are in her situation in the future uh, won't suffer as much. Uh, and I think that that is uh, just a phenomenally brave uh, and big-hearted thing to do when you know, she could easily not undergo brain surgery and you know all of the attendant uh, dangers that that entails. She's decided to do that, you know, and and I think it has given her a, a renewed sense of meaning in her life, purpose, uh, and uh, and it's quite extraordinary to see her, you know, work with the researchers. You know, I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating about about this was this imbalance of power or imbalance of of of, of kind of imbalance of power between these researchers who, you know 
preside over multi-million dollar labs and, you know, fly around the country and fly around the world and consult with presidents and the most vulnerable people in, in, in our population. And, uh, you know, this, this kind of collaboration between, you know, the, the, the powerful and the weak to, to create this, this, this new world. It was, was quite something to, to observe. So can you tell us a little bit about the work that Jen Sherman's been involved in and, uh, how, how that's gone? Sure. So Jan was, uh, you know, part of the, uh, revolutionizing prosthetics program, uh, was there were, there were, there were many, there are many different parts, but one of the parts of the revolutionizing prosthetics program, uh, was to create, you know, two separate upper limb prostheses. Uh, the final part of that is to link it to the brain. And that's where Jan and Andrew Schwartz came in, uh, or come in. And what they've been doing, uh, their goal of their study, uh, was to successfully link Jan's brain uh, to uh, the starpa funded upper limb prosthetic, uh, which Jan dubbed Hector. Uh, and so Hector is is this, I think it has 26 degrees of freedom. It's this incredibly complex robotic arm uh, that has motors in the, you know, is, is, is a modular limb. So it has a, it has motors for control in the hand, motors for control in the upper, in the forearm and in the upper arm as well. Uh, and what they were trying to do was to link Jan's brain to Hector uh, to achieve seven degrees of freedom. And Andy Schwartz had always kind of worked with monkeys. He'd never worked with humans before. Uh, he's had, he's a very careful researcher uh, who has had, you know, great success in crafting brain machine interfaces with monkeys and, and done incredibly um, elegant work in that field. But he'd never worked with a human before. Uh, and working with Jan, he was very, very quickly able to get three degrees of freedom. And I think they achieved seven degrees of freedom within the first three or four months of the pro of the program ultimately getting to 10 degrees of freedom um, which was more than anyone had ever achieved uh, previously and and shows you know is 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 a real proof of concept not only that uh, can we link the brain to computers which we knew um, but we can link the brain to computers in a manner that really begins to approximate and approach uh, the the fluidity and grace of, of a biological limb so for people who maybe aren't are thinking of 10 degrees of motion or seven degrees of movement as an abstract con concept, what does that actually look like if you're in the room watching it? What is the difference between three degrees of motion versus 10 degrees of motion? Yeah. Well, uh, three degrees of uh, three degrees of freedom would be, you know, being able to move up and down, side to side and forward and back. That's basic three degrees. Um, when you think about 10, uh, Jan had movement in the elbow, in the shoulder, in the wrist, uh, and, and in the hand as well, uh, to the point where she was able at one point to, to beat me in a game of rock, paper, scissors. So she's able to clench the hand, lay it flat, and bring out two fingers. While, you know, so she, she had a motion that while um, somewhat uh, limited compared to what you, you, you or I could do, assuming, assuming that, that you're fully limbed, um, it was sort of a streamlined or, or, or sort of a, a, a more basic motion than what, than what you would have with a, with a, with a traditional limb. Um, so she had, I think, two degrees in the shoulder, one in the elbow, uh, the wrist, and then the rest in the hand. How long did it take Jen to get to each of these different levels of freedom? 
Well, she moved to seven degrees, I think, within three or four months. I think she had three degrees of freedom on the second day of the trial, which wow. was quite something. Um, you know, she and, and Andy, Andy had Andy had a bet that he would get it on the first day. Uh, she had it on the second day, in the morning of the second. Uh, I think she was at seven degrees uh, by about three months. And when I met her, uh, she had it was really one of the best days she'd ever had and she had 10 degrees that day um the study uh documents uh, the seven degrees of freedom they didn't need to go above and beyond that so they just published on the seven uh the the 10 degrees were uh you know kind of gravy for them all you know and jan of course is saying oh they want 10 or they, i want 11 then <laughs> you know that was kind of how jan thought about it um but they uh uh, that the the thing about uh, getting into these higher degrees of freedom and 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 when you hit these benchmarks is all of a sudden these kind of mysterious things start to to, to crop up where you know when Jan reached reached ten degrees of freedom she had extraordinary control but she also had strange kind of hiccups that would that would occur and and at one point she um ceased to be able to grasp actual objects she would close her eyes and she could she could control the arm no problem and grasp objects but when she was looking at the object and trying to grasp it she'd be unable to do it uh it was very mysterious to them uh and they no one had any idea why it was happening um but what what ultimately it 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 led them to to really start thinking about was you know how is the brain thinking about these objects and how is it thinking about um you know when when you get into these higher orders of movement how is the brain considering the objects that it's handling uh and also the one thing that uh they're working on now uh, that they weren't at the at the point that I was reporting and writing the book is sensory feedback. So this arm that they've created also not only is it capable of of motor intent, but it's also able to um, deliver sensory sensory feedback to the user. Uh, Jan had two electrode grids implanted in her brain, both in the motor cortex. So one was the arm, and one was really the hand region. So she was able to move the hand, but she wasn't ever able to get any sort of tactile feedback from it. So she was kind of controlling it in space but couldn't feel which is uh which is a very if i mean if you've ever i mean you know when you're when your arm's asleep for instance it's it's very very hard to to control the limb without that native sense of feeling and she didn't have that we'll be back with more science for the people right after this every week on science for the people we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people our friends our families our communities and our society and we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. You are tuned into Science for the People, and I'm here with Malcolm Gay, journalist and author of the book The Brain Electric, The Dramatic High-Tech Race to Merge Minds and Machines. So as well, one of the things that I didn't realize uh, reading the book is how much work it is just to kind of debug or tune or uh, get everything ready to go when you want to start doing the testing. It's not as simple as plugging someone in and turning it on. There's there's a whole process involved every day, sometimes multiple times a day in getting everything ready to go. 
right this is not plug and play technology no, not yet <laughs> yeah well and 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 that's and that's one of the real challenges of the brain i mean the brain is a dynamic organ so the way the brain thinks about movement i mean each neuron fires and each neuron has a a preferred direction of firing such that you know if i'm you know to you know moving my arm up and to the right you know specific neurons will be kind of directionally tuned and be you know tied to that sort of movement and and the entire population of 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 neurons or, or the population that they're that the researchers have access to um, will be directionally tuned. Um, the thing is, is that neurons and and you know when you when you think about not merely neuroplasticity but also just the 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 physical makeup of the brain, the brain itself can can move something like two millimeters w- within the brain casing, uh, which we wouldn't think is that much, but in neural space is huge. And so if you have a um, an electrode that is that is you know placed in the brain and the brain shifts you don't necessarily know that you're still recording from the same neuron. Um, and so every morning they have to, you know, basically calibrate the machine and see how, how the brain is thinking about these specific actions. How is it thinking about moving the arm to the left? And how is it thinking about raising the arm? And how is it thinking about, because these patterns, while, you know, they are ephemeral and they're not, they're not merely ephemeral, you know, as you're doing them, but they change from day to day. And so oftentimes, Times, they'll have to calibrate the the, uh, the the computer not only you know in the morning but oftentimes several times a day as you said and that is one of the big challenges that we that the brain machine interface has toward you know if, if it's ever going to be really a commercially viable product because at this point you know, it takes two three PhD scientists to be able to control one of these things and to to have it up and running um, and it seems that, like it would be expensive for expensive time-consuming. Yeah, exactly. All of those things. All of those things. So this is one of the missing pieces, the the piece of the puzzle where it's difficult to calibrate. It has to be done multiple times a day. It takes a very advanced level of expertise to be able to do it. But what are some of the other missing pieces right now that are that are sort of on the edge of what we understand about how to make connections between brains and machines? Calibration is a huge issue. That is one of the core issues with penetration trading electrodes. When you're looking at something like electrocorticography, which is what Luthart is doing, the calibration issue is, is not nearly as, as apparent. The other real questions that we have, the first I would say is the longevity of the implant. The brain, like the rest of the body, abhors foreign objects. When these uh, electrodes pierce the brain, the immune system starts to kind of envelop them and try, you know, encases them, dampening their sensitivity. So in basic, I mean, you know, in, in physical terms, what that's doing is it's putting a, a, a damper around the actual listening point so it can't hear as much. Not only is it, not only is there actual biological material that's getting around the, uh, around the electrode, but the electrode itself is then farther away from the, from the neurons that it's trying to listen into. Depending on, you know, the implant, depending on the person, depending, you know, it, it kind of depends on, on a lot of things. Some of these implants can start to lose functionality within three months. Most of them last longer than that, but you know who's going to undergo you know elective brain surgery for a three or four month or or even a, a two year implant? So stability of the of the implant is a huge one. A lot of these brain machine 
and interfaces are really bulky wired affairs. And so they'll have a, a bank of computers that's about the size of a dishwasher and you're connected by wires to it. So, you know, if it were to be a, you know, commercially viable device outside of a real medical intervention, it would have to be a wireless implant. Uh, and then you get into questions of, you know, how do you power it? And how do you, you know, how do you, know, how do you get the sort of the, the you know, enough bandwidth within the wireless implant to be able to, to load that information as quickly as it needs to, to be able to react in real time? You know, those are, those are big, big hurdles. Lots of very, very smart people are, are working on right now. I would expect as well a wireless implant would probably have some concerns about interference. <laughs> that is one of the, the fears that some of the more future-minded people have is, you know, what happens if, if you're on a wireless system? I mean, you know, we, we increasingly live in a wireless world, but if you're on a network or you, your, your, your brain-machine interface is, is networked or a Bluetooth network, what happens if somebody has access to that network? There are real ethical implications as well. There was some research that happened a while back where we were able to connect the brains of two rats together. Can you walk us through that? That's Miguel Nicolelis, who's featured in the book. And what Miguel was doing, and I think uh, what one of the things that he's most interested in, he's interested in upper limb movement and, and kind of practical matters, but he's also very interested in, in brain-machine interface as a means toward really interrogating you know our conception of 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 the brain and kind of what it means to be a human one of his very uh latest research tracks uh involves what he calls a brain to brain interface uh and he and he initially did that with rats he's since done it with uh, monkeys as well um <clears throat> but effectively what he does is um he takes what he calls the encoding rat um and will have that rat do a simple task you know press a lever on the on the left hand side to receive a juice reward you know when when, when a light shows up um, he will then download those or he will he will collect that neural information run it through an algorithm and then stimulate a second rat which is called the decoding rat to perform the exact same action so when the when the second rat receives that sort of uh, of, of neural stimulation uh, it knows to do the exact same activity that the first rat had done. Um, the idea being that he can, you know, you can use this not only as a, as a way of commanding a second rat, um, but more importantly, he, he starts to think about it in terms of, of actually networking, you know, kind of creating these cyborg networks among, you know, various animals. And his, you know, his question, I mean, these are, these are simple tasks that he's having them do. Um, but as this, as this area of research progresses and, and becomes, you know, more, uh, can, can actually achieve greater clarity, um, you know, his questions become, you know, what happens when, when two consciousnesses, three people, four people are actually, you know, linked this way. Does some sort of, you know, larger consciousness emerge out of these two, three, four brains that are linked? And is that something we could even understand at this point, seeing as how we each only have one? I mean, so he's he's really pushing the boundaries of 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 of, of brain machine interface in that way. There's an interesting and I think that that research is a great example of it, where it is both simultaneously really fascinating and I want to know more and I want to read more and I want them to keep doing the research, but also kind of creepy and a bit concerning <laughs> about potential future. I mean, it, it, there's a lot in this area that kind of pings both of those sides. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, I think, um, you know, I, I, I agree. Um, you know, I think that the 
science fiction quality to this, uh, while certainly there, and it and it opens this very large these very large questions. Um, you know, on the one hand, it is very far away. You know, I mean, th- that having that sort of clarity of of of, of brain machine interface would is 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 a ways off. Um, while at the same time, you know, it's 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 not a it's it's not a trivial concern. I mean, you know, what happens if if we have brain implants that you know would allow increased cognition or enhanced cognition uh, for certain people? You know, so if I'm able to you know have a brain machine interface that allows me to study better for the LSAT, uh, and my you know friend does not, does that put me at an unfair advantage? You know, there are real questions about that. On the other hand, I mean, I think that. What brain machine interface really talk, speaks to is you know this deeply human um, idea of of harnessing technology to really make us you know more powerful you know better equipped to to live in the world and I think that that's something that we've been doing um, you know since we first caught fire. You mentioned augmenting sort of normal, quote unquote, humans, people who aren't uh, disabled or people who haven't lost a limb. And of course, when you think about how involved DARPA is in a lot of this research historically, the first thing a lot of people think to quite obviously is super soldiers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And that that must be somewhere on their bucket list of dreams for some of this research. <laughs> is that, did you, do you feel like that's an accurate statement or is that us just making some assumptions about DARPA that maybe are not entirely fair. Well, there's a lot of concern about DARPA. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, when the Department of Defense is is funding research into the brain, there's um, a lot of a lot of people uh, you know, are worried. Um, and you know, there it, there's no doubt that in the past, uh, DARPA has you know worked with you know neuroprosthetists to um, in an effort to create you know smarter sol- soldiers uh, who. Uh, will perform better in, in, in wartime. Um, you know, they've had, they've had programs to, uh, enhance, I mean, to, 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 to enhance cognition during periods of prolonged, uh, sleep deprivation. They've had programs to, uh, you know, link, uh, uh fighter pilots to the cockpit. Uh, they've had programs to, um, they've had a, an assortment of programs that are really geared toward creating a, a, a better class of soldiers. Um, you know, and, and the revolutionizing prosthetics program, uh, is, is really a rehabilitative program, but the technology itself, uh, you know, I mean, DARPA's, uh, is, is, is one of the, um, you know, one of the examples that everyone points to of, you know, a milit of, of a, of a, of an agency that creates military technologies that are, you know, later transformed into, uh, consumer use, such as, um, the internet, for instance, you know, I mean, the, these are these are technologies that were created by the military uh, that have made the, the the jump into the consumer realm. It's really interesting uh, the whole kind of helping people who, like you say, helping some of the weakest people sort of regain their freedom, regain mobility. And those kinds of very lofty and uh, commendable goals. But the other side of this, there's also a, a whole bunch of people who are interested in, in enhancing what we would consider to be normal 
levels of operation. And that seems to be kind of an interesting combination of desires here too. And, and quite often we hear more about the, 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 the current interest in things like nootropics and boosting your brain power and performing mm-hmm. better than we necessarily hear about what we hear a lot about in your book, which is trying to assist people who have been injured, who have lost a limb, who are weak, uh, who have, are, are, who don't have any mobility. So it's quite interesting that I would have expected the opposite. I would have have expected that we sort of focus on the lofty goals, um, but it's really kind of switched. We're really focusing on what can this do for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, I think that the, the sci-fi future of neuroprosthetics has, you know, it has sex appeal, <laughs> you know? I mean, frankly, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really enticing topic to a lot of people. Um, and yeah, the truth is, is that, you know, some of these technologies are already out there. I mean, people are working with uh, you know transcranial stimulation right now, and 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 you know there have been you know studies that show that you know it really does improve focus. Um, you know people are, are working on on you know various various commercial enterprises to to harness that technology for um, you know meditative uses, uh, you know clarity issues. I mean they're they're already trying. I mean there's a lot of 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 interest uh, both commercially and I think just kind of culturally. Uh, in you know learning more about the brain to enhance the brain um, you know and and that's and and that's not going away you know and it's uh you know it's a very uh and, and i don't i don't know that it's 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 something that um you know i think as long as we're staying outside the brain as long as we're using eeg and and things of that nature um that's always going to be of limited utility uh to really be able to 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 transform the brain um, we at, at least at this point, I mean, at least with the with the technologies that we currently have, um, we really need to be inside, and that's and that's where you know all you know you look at you look at so many consumer technologies. They began in the in the medical realm, um, and I think what a lot of the people that are looking to uh, commercialize the brain and and to and to, and, and eventually to create products to enhance the brain, um, they're following that model and they're thinking that you know these will you know we will get a commercial beachhead in the medical realm uh, and then it will trans- and then that will be translated into the consumer realm. And I guess really the market for prosthetics due to med- for medical reasons is not so big. So there, the commercial interest and the desire to push some sort of commercial product really has to be from the perspective of a wider audience than just people who need prosthetics. That's right. That's right. Is there, for anybody who loves this field and uh, is, is interested to follow it closely, where should they be looking? What is the latest and greatest that maybe isn't in the book, but that you're watching really closely? Well, I think what I'm watching, I think Ted Berger's work is really interesting. Um, he's working on uh, prosthetic memory. Uh, he's not necessarily the latest and greatest. He's been doing this for a long time, but he's had extraordinary uh, luck, or not luck. Um, he's had extraordinary results in in what he's and what he's been able to achieve. Um, optogenetics is uh, is I think. Where a lot of people are looking for this sort of technology to emerge, um, optogenetics uses uh, light to activate neurons instead of electricity, uh, and so you can be much more precise and actually simply have a certain class of neurons react to a to a to a specific light, and others will remain dormant. Um, and so it's a much more precise uh, way of uh, of interacting with the brain. Um, 
you know, there are also hurdles with that. But that's a that's a very very exciting place to be looking. The other place I think is 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 sensory information. Um, you know, there are uh, there are people that are working right now with artificial skins and 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 sensors that would allow these implants to to give people actual sensations that are there from the outside world. Malcolm, thanks for joining me today. This is a fascinating topic. Um, and for anyone interested in this field, I absolutely recommend checking out The Brain Electric. It's a great read. My pleasure. Thanks so much. If you want to learn more about Malcolm Gay or his book, The Brain Electric, The Dramatic High-Tech Race to Merge Minds and Machines, we've put up some links for you on the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. This is Desiree Shell, and we had one last thing to talk about today on Science for the People. I'm joined now by Amy Davis-Roth to talk about Mad Artcast. Hello again, Amy. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for having me. Always good to have you here. So, uh, what is Mad Artcast exactly? Mad Artcast is a podcast about the intersection of art and science. And it is co-hosted by myself and a few other wonderful people. Uh, Ashley Hamer is a jazz saxophonist from Chicago. Brian George is an illustrator and an art assistant who works in the some of the famous galleries in New York City. So he's really tapped into that New York art scene. And then also A. Kovacs, who is a partner of, and a publisher. She works with bestselling author Scott Sigler. And she's also assistant to Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman from the Mythbusters. And she is also a chemist, right? So she has this history in research chemistry. So she helps to keep us grounded while at the same time being very much involved with artists. So it's a really fun podcast that we've started where it's very conversational. It's very relaxed. And, and it's mostly about artists finding inspiration in the sciences. And we often bring actual scientists in to sort of help us along and help us understand the more complex issues that we don't, as artists, understand already. Well, now, maybe you tell us a, a bit about your most recent episode so that people can get, can get a sense of what kinds of things you talk about. The most recent episode that came out was with Asad Abu Baker, who is an engineer for NASA, and he works at JPL. And so he came on to teach us about how heat is radiated off spacecrafts and how you can create oxygen on Mars. And he also decided to be a champ and help me out with a project that I'm working on personally, which is this fun sort of sci-fi robot series that's going to be an all-ages coloring book that's based on molecular chemistry that takes place on the moon Enceladus. So Assad was really helpful in coming up with ways where we could sort of heat uh, a dome on the moon Enceladus so that we could keep humans alive and how we could create food and do things like that. So it was a really fun episode. So all of your art at this point is, is currently peer-reviewed, correct? Oh, well, yeah, I have a Patreon project. You can find me at Patreon slash Surly Amy, where I have a project that I'm doing that I have actual scientists peer review my work. So I will come up with an idea, something to do with 
uh, I've been working with a lot of like neurotransmitters. That's what I've been into lately. So I find different scientists that specialize in that. And I have them look over my work before I finish it so that I know that the messages that I'm sending are accurate. Even though I do a lot of sci-fi stuff, like I give myself liberty to sort of stretch the science. But if I'm actually trying to express something to the public, I want to make sure I'm sending the correct message. So yeah, I get actual scientists to come in and peer review my pieces before I release them. And this project all sort of started once when I was painting DNA. And I was doing this big DNA strand and the connectors in the ladder of the DNA, I was painting like a rainbow of colors. Like I had like 15 different colors. And what I didn't realize at the time was that you could only have four different colors. They could be in different connections, but in order for them to match up, there was only four colors that you could use. So I had a couple scientists come at me and explain this to me in a really nice way. And that inspired me to reach out to more scientists. Like why... If, if, I, if I'm inspired by science, I can be twice as inspired if I can have actual scientists talking to me. And I got really lucky, and I know a lot of people. And so that's what I've been doing for this Patreon project. And it's sort of spun off now into this really fun robot project, which has been inspired by someone we all know and love, which is who, Desiree? It's... It's you. I, I'm. I love this project. <laughs> it's the best project, honestly. It's. Uh, please do go check out Mad Artcast afterwards, and you can find a link to Surly Amy and her uh, her sad robot series. It is brilliant. But yeah. So I guess my question is: so, so what did Assad teach you about? Uh, I guess how to make your your robot project more true to science. Yeah, he taught me. A lot of things that I still haven't quite parsed yet, like a lot of things about how I can use solar energy in order to create heat and energy to run the feel-good bar and grill, which is what I have decided to name this imagined restaurant that's going to exist on the moon Enceladus as a place for humans on their way out of the galaxy to stop off. And it teaches all about molecular chemistry at the same time. So Assad came in and gave me ideas about how I could have oxygen that's already existing, how I could use the underwater seawater that's existing underneath the surface of Enceladus in order to produce oxygen and food and do all kinds of other things. So he was really helpful. And then he sent me like a bucket load of links that I haven't even had a chance to go through the man is a genius but uh, I have to go through all of it like all these different like ways to use nuclear energy and yeah solar energy was primarily we thought was a great idea because Enceladus is covered with snow and so it's highly reflective so it would be a great way to produce energy on that moon I really enjoyed that conversation, by the way. Like that that part specifically of of Mad Artcast, it was brilliant. But you also spoke a bit about the Super Bowl show and Beyonce's performance. So what <laughs> what was the angle there? Yeah, well, see, that's the whole thing. It's a very you know relaxed conversationalist podcast, and we always want to sort of merge art and science together. So we try to have on most of our episodes, you know, sometimes we were a little hit or miss because we're new. We're on episode 44 right now. So we're just sort of getting our feet steady. But we try to have something to do with art and something to do with science. And it just so happened that that day, Beyonce had released her really fantastic track, Formation. And since Ashley, one of our co-hosts, is a musician, we love to, you know, 
talk as much as we can about music. And then also it was a really interesting angle about social justice, social activism and black power. And artists, you know, by nature are really interested in, you know, activism and such. So that's what we do. We just combine art and science as best we can to hopefully entertain and inspire both artists and scientists. And that's the thing. The the show is very wide ranging. So if you tune in, you could learn about, you know, concentrated solar energy. You could hear about pop culture. You could learn about intersectional politics. It is it is brilliant. So if that is your thing, folks out there, uh, you should definitely listen to Mad Artcast. So if if one was so inclined, where would they find it, Amy? Well, you can find us on iTunes, and we are the official podcast of MadArtLab.com. So it's really easy to find us there. You just go to MadArtLab.com, and there's a link at the top of the page that has all of our current podcasts listed right there, and you can listen to it there. Or again, find us on iTunes, and you can find me on Twitter, at Surly Amy. And if you want to see all of my robot illustrations that I've done so far, go to Patreon slash Surly Amy, S-U-R-L-Y-A-M-Y. And they're all listed publicly, so you don't have to pledge to my Patreon to see them there. And they are wonderful. Again, highly advisable. And Amy, thank you so much for coming by. It's always wonderful to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love the show. And we've linked to Mad Artcast on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.